Hi, my name is Larry Simpson, and I'm happy to serve as the Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs and Provost. And this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we are joined by Larry Simpson. Dr. Simpson has served as the Provost and Vice President of Academic Affairs at Berkeley since 2005. He's also done a tremendous amount of work in the art and music world, serving on the boards of the New England Foundation of the Arts, the National Black Arts Festival, the Musical Arts Association in Cleveland, as well as many others. He's also hosted several jazz radio programs in the past and has a deep understanding and love of the art form. Larry shares his insights into creating standards for an optimal learning environment, and he also talks about his passion for jazz. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Larry Simpson. Hi everyone. In honor of our guest today, I'm going to introduce myself as Dr. Kim Perlack, the chair of the guitar department. And we're thrilled to have you on another Coffee Talk. Um, we're here as usual with Cheryl Bailey, our assistant chair. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, everybody and our senior coordinator, Ian Steed. Hey, Ian. Hey, all. And our guest today is Dr. Larry Simpson, who's provost of our school. Hey, Larry, welcome. Hello to all of you and happy to be here today. This is great. So everyone, Larry is a part of our guitar community as our leader in academic affairs and is also a common presence in our classrooms and in the office. He comes to have coffee with us is always in the back of a classroom or a clinic concert. And, and you also probably will run into him at Pavement, which is our <laughs> other coffee hang other than the guitar office. So um, thank you so much for being here, Larry. Happy, happy, Kim, to be here. So the first question we always ask everybody is, do you drink coffee and how do you take it? I drink coffee. Now, when I'm at Pavement, I have a mocha but I'm not going to drink mocha anymore at pavement because a year or two ago, I said, whenever the mocha prices go above $5, I am done. When I was there the other day and I ordered a mocha, it was $5 and three cents. And I said, I, I, I'm just morally, I cannot pay $5 for a cup of coffee. And so, and so, uh, to answer your question more directly, I'll be having this regular black coffee from now on. Ooh, so you've joined the club here then, because we are, um, Cheryl and I have become black coffee drinkers. I'm with you. I'm with you. Love that. And I'm in a crisis because our local roaster in our town um, just retired. Uh, so I'm like looking all around, but Cheryl's going to save us because Cheryl has started home roasting, Larry. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> if you're interested, 
I can hook you up. Hook no, you I'm up. not interested, but uh, <laughs> if you don't know, you need to know Enrique Gonzalez mm -hmm. in the MPE department. Uh, he's on the faculty in MPE, and he he knows way too much about coffee. <laughs> two or three times a year, he brings me, and he travels the world in search of coffees. And he brings them back, and two or three times a year, he'll bring me a bag of coffee that he has roasted at home. Mm -hmm. And it's always my best coffee of the year, with, without a doubt. So I've, I've heard about this guy. I need to, I need to chat with him. Get oh, my... yeah, yeah. And in fact, I think he would be wonderful on Coffee Talk. He really, really, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's a fascinating person. And I think particularly for um, uh, your students and prospective students, even his whole concept and thinking about guerrilla recording and how you record music and record yourself in this current age. Um, he, he is very knowledgeable about that. So mm. he's good people and he's a coffee expert. So you, you can have your choice. You can talk to him the whole hour about coffee <laughs> or you can talk to him about music or music and coffee. This see, this is great. And this is one of the things that we're going to get to over and over, I think, with with you, Larry, is that um, maybe as part of your position or also because of um, what you bring to it, you have been a great connector of meeting people across the college and connecting them with one another. Um, and I think the next thing people kind of want to know is how did you get connected with Berkeley? Like, what brought you here? It was a really mundane occurrence. I was um, at work at my previous institution and the phone rang and the headhunter said, hey, there's this gig um, opening up at Berkeley College of Music in Boston and um, are you interested? That's how it happened. And I mean, it took many, many months later of going back and forth and the like, um, but um, I really wanted to be here once I really, really uh, got to know the institution and the people and the possibilities of this place, which is like no other place. Um, um, I made the um, the hard push to get here. And, and so I've been here for 16 years now. So a lot of times on the show, when we talk to people who've come to Berkeley, we talk about coming in in an early part of your career, kind of working your way up. But you had an opposite experience. You came in as the leader of academic affairs. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about what it's like to come in into a leadership role? What were the what was your strategy coming in, knowing that you're learning about the place and you're in a leadership role in that place? I was always comfortable with being in a leadership position because <clears throat> prior to coming to Berkeley, um, I had two stints as presidents of community college campuses in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was used to being uh, in, that, uh, in that position. But coming to Berkeley, it took me a minute to really understand how really, really unique Berkeley is. That took some getting used to. The, the way Berkeley was founded, uh, you know, in 1945, and uh, on this principle that music of the day could be taught systematically. I mean, that, and that music of the day essentially was jazz. And jazz 
prior to then was not taught in the academy. It was taught, you learned it on the bandstand and you learned it uh, essentially as being an apprentice and the like. And so to, to say the music could be taught um, systematically in a formal educational environment was pretty revolutionary. And because it was founded in that way, what was really important were, was not the academic credentials of the people, but could they play? Could they do what it is that um, the institution said uh, it needed and wanted? So this place is very, very special. So it took me a little while to really understand the unique uh, beauty of Berkeley. And it's still, um, uh, th that magic is still here. And it just keeps me excited. Uh, 16 years on, I'm still excited about it. So to your specific question about leadership, um, that's all I was looking for. Um, uh, to be the, the academic leader of the institution, I was very comfortable in my knowledge of curriculum and how institutions work and the like. And I just wanted to... Um, uh, come in and help people be able to do uh, what they do at the highest levels and not be burdened overly by bureaucracy and, and, and so forth. Um, it's been a blast. Were there some moments that stood out to you um, where you think when you came like that really made me feel like I was in a unique place? Like what were some of your early impressions? <laughs> this may sound silly. But uh, I told you I was president of a community college, two community college campuses, and my attire every day was suit and tie. Uh, and no one, I mean, no one called me Larry. I was always Dr. Simpson. Everybody that worked for me called me Dr. Simpson. All the students called me Dr. Simpson. And so I come to Berkeley, no men dressed and no everybody was on a first name basis and i said is this a higher ed institution <laughs> i mean the answer is yeah but it was so different in that regard i didn't own one sports jacket when i came to berkeley i was strictly a suit guy <laughs> and um so it took me a minute to get out of the suit and tie uh, habit, but there's still people who still associate me with that who knew me from way back in the day mm -hmm. uh, when I first got here. Uh, so then I transitioned um, to sports jackets and shirts, and then um, then it was just whatever I felt like doing uh, from, a, from a clothing point of view. So that was an early, early... Um, uh, insight into how Berkeley was unique and different. And what it said, again, it was about what can you do? Who, what, what can you, you have to prove yourself through practice, through what it is you uh, profess to be able to do. And, um, and so there was less of a, you couldn't hide behind a title at Berkeley. I find you just can't hide behind a title. And we all know who can do what. And um, so, you know, as we said, like one of those old sayings, it's hard to fake the funk at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And I, I think to that point, um, most of us, if we think about how we met you, it would be like, oh, there was a person who came to my concert or came to my class and or came by the guitar office and was just interested in asking questions. And then I found out, oh, my goodness, that's that's the provost of the college. That's the academic leader. And I think a lot of people have those moments. Um, we've had students in the office in, in uh, Ian's old position of running the work study crew who knew who you were but didn't realize that you had come in because you said, oh, I'm just going to hang out and talk to these faculty and hang out by the by the copier and, you know, and hang out by the coffee machine. And, and um, I think that that kind of community where everyone tries to learn from one another is something that you've brought at just kind of walking around and being the leader that is there, whether it's at pavement or on the street or in the classroom. And um, I know that you have in some ways engaged with a lot of faculty with another part of your expertise, which is this deep knowledge of jazz mm -hmm. and a leadership role that you've taken on in jazz. And so Cheryl, I know you have a story like that about meeting Larry in person for the first time. And I thought maybe you'd like to share that and kind of take, take us into the jazz realm for a minute. Yeah, well, <laughs> I remember Larry when I was teaching at Umbria. Mm -hmm. You'd come by my class, you know, my guitar class of, you know, whatever we'd be getting into. And then a couple of times we just met. And I was like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, you were hanging out in my class today. And we had some great conversations about Stanley Turrentine, I remember in particular, and Hara Silver. And then I was like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> You're the pro, <laughs> but it was so great because you just have a, a manner of being at ease, which made me feel at ease, which is, and because you're so passionate and knowledgeable, really knowledgeable about the music, I think that's so important. In you know, I'll tell of you, it's interesting about Umbria. I've, I went to the Umbria Festival long before I came to Berkeley, and I saw some of the early Berkeley people in Umbria. This was in 1987, was my first visit to Umbria. And so when I came to Berkeley and, you know, saw that we really had a, a significant connection with that festival, I said, are you kidding me? Sign me up. I mean, um, so I've been to just numerous uh, Umbria festivals and I think it's important to, you know, the educational program that takes place there is really, really good. We, we always get a number of students from uh, that festival. But I mean, what better place is there ever than to be in Perugia? Uh, um, I mean, it's, it's such a special, special place. But yeah, I always, always love doing that. I always loved, I've always loved um, hanging out and talking with people and being open and accessible to people um, because and they'll do the same in return for you. I've, all, I've, I've always said, I want there to be as few barriers between me and another human being when we are in communication with each other. And so um, there are enough barriers that it's hard to fight through them. And so I just try and keep them at a minimum and for me to be as still as possible so that um, 
my uh, energies is not affecting the other person. Well, I think that was what was so great about it. I felt so at ease. Maybe if I'd known your time, maybe I you know like you're the guy. I might, but 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 you never had that that vibe, and it was great. And and um, it was a really. No, I great get I'm saying I am the guy, <laughs> but that's why I can be at ease. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, I mean that's part of who I am. Period. I mean that's just through a lifelong study of a number of things. Um, but um, one does not have to wear one's credentials on one's sleeve. That was another thing, Kim, I'll tell you that surprised me when I told you about I was doctor every day. And, uh, you know, academic credentials um, aren't viewed the same here at Berkeley. And so uh, I would always be surprised to learn that someone had a DMA or a PhD or an EDD or even a master's degree because people just don't go around that way and no one is called doctor really except Kim you and I have our doctor doctor uh hookup which I love that <laughs> you know so we're a doctor doctor but um but that's just not Berkeley mm -hmm. really and and again I think it is um uh show us what you know, show us who you are. And that's how one gets accepted in the community. Um, and, and what's better? I mean, think about this. We're the largest music school in the world, largest music college in the world, with students from 100 countries, more than 102 countries, I do believe, playing every kind of music you can think of. And just to be in this environment. I mean, it just, it is, you know, we all hear music every day and we all hear different kinds of music every single day. I recall we were interviewing a, a candidate for, um, I don't even know what the position was. That's not really important. But uh, she was standing up and this was in the 1140 building and we all know that is not the world's best soundproof building. So this music was wafting up and, um, and she said, wow, you know, it, this is noisy. I knew at that moment she would never fit in at this place. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, 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 no. This is not the place um uh for this person uh because she identified the thing we're most attached to as noise and um um there is some music that is noisy um um and i've heard my fair share of it um um i'll never forget the first time i saw weather report i was like Oh my God, I mean, you know, it was just pounding off my chest, but I was mesmerized by weather report. Oh, and you know, um, the same thing was true when I heard the Bitches Brew Band of Miles Davis. I'd never heard anything that loud in my life. Um, 
but they, oh my goodness, they were just rocking. I mean, it was, it was serious. Um, so anyway. I, I love that. And um, because I love, you know, our joke about Dr. Doctor in some ways implies that we're just, it's just another way that you can continue to learn throughout your life. Exactly. One more path. And to, to uh, your listening track there, I wonder if you could go back to it a little bit because you've had a tremendous part of your life is, a, is about listening, mm -hmm. um, being in the um, radio business and mm -hmm. with jazz and uh, running some festivals. What are some other things you feel like you've learned from listening to so much music? Um, I'll say learn specifically from listening to so much jazz music mm -hmm. that I find uh, jazz to be, now I'm, I'm going to expose my biases. Go right ahead. It is the highest evolved form of music, period. Um, um, it is, it is, it is the most democratic form of music. It does not exclude anyone or anybody. It can take the most mundane melodies and transform them, um, in ways, um, um, I think about, uh, John Coltrane's My Favorite Things, for example which comes from the sound of music. And if you go back and listen to the original uh, soundtrack of Sound of Music, then you listen to Train and you go, are you kidding me? I mean, this is the same song. Um, jazz has always been open to people of every uh, uh, stripe, every variety. Where it has not been as open has been in welcoming women to the bandstand, uh, but there is that history of uh, of women playing this music over the years, um, but not getting the recognition that they deserve, and and that's a reason that I'm so thrilled about the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice, headed by Terry Lynn Carrington, um, because they are out to change that story. Um, um, so listening is um, really important. Uh, and I've heard, I've heard, first of all, jazz expresses every, every single human emotion. I know people might say, you know, does, you know. Um, I listened to this record um, by the pianist Don Pullen, and he, uh, it was called uh, Sacred Common Ground. And when I listened to that, I could tell he was at such peace with himself and was not going to live very long. And he died shortly after. In fact, I don't even know if he was alive when that record came, was released. But if it had come out, he died shortly thereafter. It is such a beautiful piece of music. And when my own father died, I went to that CD constantly because it brought me such um such comfort um and so i think jazz um and so if you really really listen um you can hear the universe and all of his manifestations and um uh and i i'm ever grateful for being um 
having had such a long relationship with that art form and that music and and um i have seen all of the greats for the most part live and and i've seen people when they were young and now they're not young anymore and to watch their growth and development um as when i was doing jazz photography this music in fact that's what took me to umbria in 1987 um, um and i've been everywhere doing jazz photography i don't do i don't do it at all anymore i keep i keep telling myself i'll get back to it um but the listening piece is you have to listen or you miss something and um and I'm a psychologist also. Right. And so that is a part. I mean, you have to listen to people. And um, I would much rather listen to a person than to talk, except under circumstances like this where you all are making me talk. <laughs> <laughs> I can do this. I can, I can do this. Um, you know, I used to have, um, I've had three jazz radio programs in my career. And when, when I was talking about that noise example, um, one of them was an avant-garde um, uh, program. And Cheryl, if the song had a melody, I wouldn't play it. I just, <laughs> I wanted the most out, you know, hard to listen to music there was. And, um, um, but the others, um, uh, were more inside jazz radio programs. And the thing about the radio, you know, you could create your own world. I mean, because you don't know who's listening. You don't know where they are, under what circumstances they're listening to you. And I'm in there trying to craft a, a, a soundscape that I, you know, to go from one song to another to another that will just carry people on and uh so i love that i mean i really really loved it and that helped listen and i used to do jazz um record reviews for many years and so you got to really listen if you're going to write about it you have to uh really listen and be honest um and and try and really understand what the composer is doing what the musician is doing what the band is doing so that you can render a judgment that is is accurate and is honest and is faithful to the music um, as the artist intended it to be, and that was always a, a goal of mine to to do that in listening. So yeah, Kim, that's a long answer, but I love listening. I love that. Um, could you say one more thing about the avant-garde? Could you tell people, you know, what what is it that grabs you about some of that music? Maybe it's one track in particular. Like, what is it that really grabs you? Um, it was the, what grabbed me about the avant-garde was its fierce push against the status quo. That, um, 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 that we're going to push and blow as hard and squeak and squonk and do all of that as, as an opposition to 
the everyday. And the everyday oppression, for example, that Black people are feeling, there was this push against that and it was noisy and it was chaotic and and oddly enough i found it healing and after a while you know and doing a, a weekly radio show because i was playing so much of this music i mean it was really i was like taking it in and then i was able to move away from that being the steady diet to then a more open diet of everything. Um, um, and, um, and then you begin to see the beauty in all of those musics, but, um, but the avant-garde, that is what it was to me. It was a, it was a defiant um, uh, push against conformity, oppression, um, and we're going to find our voice in this wilderness. If, even if it, we don't care how long it takes, how long the solo takes, we're going to just blow our way until we get to the other side and to the resolution. Um, and those were some um, brave people. And it took me years when I was doing the radio uh, show. I didn't fully get it. You know, it, I would like some of those Albert Eiler tunes. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it took me years to come back to them to really, wow, I hear this. I really hear it in a different way now than I did even then. Uh, and uh, because I found myself to be even more open as I got older and continued to um, to listen, uh, but I'm always listening. I'm always listening for new stuff. That's one of the things about streaming that um, I have found really nice because um, you can listen and not be committed if you don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you say, oh, oh, that was fun. You know, that, that was cool. You know, like 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 in jazz now, a lot of these British artists are making a name for themselves, and and you can just go from one to another to another and listen. It, it wasn't like that um, um, early on when you had to buy it, you, even with CDs. Um, but especially with with vinyl, first of all, you had to go buy them and pay for them, which I always, well, I didn't have to pay for all of them because when I was in my record review years, I got everything for free. Um, got in all the concerts. I mean, uh, there, there was some, some uh, bonuses to that life. Don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah. Hey, Larry, I'm curious if you are into vinyl now, have a vinyl collection and listen to vinyl now or did you go on the bandwagon and get rid of it all move to I digital? got rid of a, I got rid of a lot of vinyl uh, much to my dismay at this point um, uh, I still I still have some vinyl um, but I don't I don't listen in the way I used to I tell you just real quickly a very dear friend of mine and I, we, we lived in the same neighborhood. And um, he was a jazz writer, still is, jazz writer, uh, record reviewer, concert producer, all of that. Uh, and, and he and I would, 
take turns um, going to each other's homes and we listen to the latest, whoever, whoever it might uh, be. And the thing that always struck me about those listening sessions was we wouldn't talk. You know, we drop the needle on the record and we go sit in our respective chairs, listen. Then when the side A was over, we get up, turn it over to side B and listen all the way through side B. And then we would talk about the music. Um, and so, um, um, but I don't do it that way anymore. As I said, I listen to all these streaming services. Now I have one of my complaints is about how people listen to music. And uh, most people listen to it and listen to music in a very degraded way, um, you know, through earbuds, AirPods, or I'm looking at an iPad over here, an iPad, or uh, not necessarily good speakers. And I think that's a shame. I tell you, um, uh, you know, there's this experiment I was talking about, um, Enrique Gonzalez in the mp &E program. They used to bring in an engineer, and Kim, you may uh, know this story. And he would, he, his experiment was, he would have people in the room listen to a track that was compressed. And then he would play the track that had very little compression. And people would have their minds blown. We're losing that much music in a compressed format. And they, well, yeah, you are. And then a couple of years ago, one of my more fun ventures in the 160 building in, in the Shames recording studio, I brought six friends of mine into the studio. And I said, I want you to bring your favorite recordings, the recordings that you think you know best. And we're going to put them through this system to a person. They were freaking out. They were losing their minds. They started yelling. They started hearing things in these records that uh, these recordings, they, they all brought CDs that they had never heard before. And um, um, so that's kind of a roundabout way. And, and high-end audio, is really expensive, it's big, it takes up a lot of space, uh, and people don't want that in their homes for the most part, unless they um, have, I mean, unless that's their business, you know, it's one thing if you're a musician or engineer or something like that, and you need that setup, but most people won't devote that money uh, nor the space that's required for these things um, to really have a really, really good listening experience. But I do know the difference between <laughs> good sound and poor sound. But let me, let me say, forget all the sound I'm talking about. If the, if the composition and, and the execution of it is not good, you know, you can play it on, on the world's best speakers and it'll still be crap. 
um, if the composition is not good. So it's really about the music itself, the tone, not the tone, but the tune, the composition, uh, and the execution by the player. Um, and, you know, you know when people can do it and when they can't. Um, and the last thing I'll, I'll say about that when I talk about these experiences, since um, we're, we're in the guitar department here, uh, I've heard Berta Rojas now several times live and on recording. I love the recording she's on, uh, but to hear her live is like heartbreaking at times um, that she plays so beautifully and so masterfully and but that's who she is as a human being yes she is playing Berta that is what she is doing I'm so happy she is on this faculty I really am I, I am too and I'm so glad you said that because it ties into something I wanted to bring it back I think when we're listening to you there's so much connection in everything you're saying. You talk about feeling solid in yourself as a leader and how almost that really allows you to keep learning. And you've become a master in so many different facets of what we do musically and beyond. And you're also a social psychologist. That's where your doctorate lies. I would think that all of those things and all of that ability to be humble and continue to learn different things all throughout your life and be a lifelong learner and to be able to learn to listen so that you hear the essence of someone as a performer, mm -hmm. no matter what style they're playing, that must really serve you as a provost of a school like Berkeley in which you're always with people at different stages of their life journey with music. And I wonder, I know it's a big question, but do you have any observations or any advice for students who are in like an earlier stage and are starting to feel insecure or feel like, or they start to feel confident in one thing and, and they're a bit afraid to go out of their comfort zone as someone who is a master and then has had the courage to go out of your own comfort zone. What, what would you tell them? Um, I would, I would tell them a, 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 a few things. Um, first of all, being insecure is a part of the journey. Um, unless one is just, I can't even say, I can't even name um, examples because everyone had to go through insecurity until they found their own voice. And so first I would hope that the environment in which the students find themselves with us supports them, that they feel that they are supported and that their insecurity will not be a, used as a judgment against them. We used to say, you know, when, um, when the student is ready, the master will appear. But the corollary, the people, corollary to that that nobody necessarily talks about, and the student gets the teacher they deserve. And so not all teachers are, are equal um, uh, to, and not all teachers fit every student. And so you got to find that balance. Uh, I think students need to find that balance. And they need to um, uh, trust themselves. They need to trust. And, um, you know, it's like I used to also um, talk about the, the Knights of the Round Table. Um, a part of that story was uh, when they were in search of the Holy Grail, that each knight went into the forest where it was darkest. 
And I think a lot of our students have got to go through that experience and, and come out of it um, having found their voice. And to me, that's our role, a part of our, a big part of our role with these students is to, and, and you all do this, you help them find their voice. You help them find their voice, no matter what it is. And we try not to um, um, change it or get in the way of it. Because um, uh, it takes time, it takes time. And, and it requires the faculty to really, really listen to that student. What is it they are really struggling with artistically and technically on, on the instrument, let's say in this case on the guitar. Um, what, what guitar, uh, guitarists and, and compositions can, can the faculty share with a student that kind of shows them, you know, this is, you might want to listen to this. May not tell them why you want them to listen to it, <laughs> but you say, you might want to check this out. You know, they might hear something if they are really serious about perfecting and honing their craft. But that's one of the things that is um, really uh, great about Berkeley because we're so large and we have so many faculty. I mean, look at the guitar faculty. Look how many people you all have in this department. And they're wonderful, wonderful teachers across a spectrum of musical experiences. And, um, and the resources that you all have, I think are pretty good. And so insecurity is, uh, is a part of um, finding oneself. And it doesn't necessarily go away. I mean, you hear people who, um, who have issues with that, even when we may look at them um, um, and think they have no insecurities, or, or we say, you have no reason to be insecure. You know, you are this, you are that, you know. Um, um, no, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a little insecurity um, because then you're just, then I think, because if you're not, then I just think you become arrogant. And if you're arrogant, then you limit yourself in, in terms of what you're able to do. And, um, and I'll tell you my own leadership, I just don't stand in the way of people. I really don't. I don't, I don't, you will never find anybody who's ever worked for me to say I micromanaged them, you know, that I got in their way. Cause I'd rather a person do something wrong and stupid than do nothing, <laughs> do something. You know, it's like you could tell your student, just play something. <laughs> you know, and it, it might hurt your ears, but just play something, you know. Um, that gives you something to work with, um, so. I think that's perfect. And Ian, this plays into your question. Ian always has a great question. Yeah, so, um... You know, I don't think I've ever asked anybody at your <laughs> exact uh, role this question, uh, but um, what's something that students should be thinking about? Or let's like even widen it out. What's what's something people at Berkeley should be thinking about that might not be on their radar? Mm. I would respond, uh, Ian, in this way, and especially at, in, in this moment. 
I think I would like more people at Berkeley to think about what it is we do and how we do it and how we can make it better um, in light of the changes that we see going on in the world today, in light of the changes we see going on in our country. Um, one of the things when, when early in my tenure here, I had a, um, a project it was called the career, um, uh, the career, the <laughs> curriculum review initiative CRI, and we were at that for a few years. And frankly, it didn't work in the way that I thought. I was a little naive coming in here. I was a little not prepared for the conservatism of the Berkeley curriculum because I'm coming to Berkeley, you know, and I, this is the place, the hip, cool place. And, um, and I found it to be very conservative and that was upsetting to me. And so I said, let me let this sit for a while. And so I think we're ready to take another look at that um, and to see how we craft and improve our courses and curriculum in a way that is more open to the experiences of the broader world than has been the case heretofore. Um, and we don't talk about that very much. Um, we're going to talk about it more, but to your question, we don't, that is something I would want people to take a look at and um, be open to, um, um, to helping us change to be um, a, a, a um, even a brighter light in the music um, world because it's all different. You've heard me talk about streaming and uh, and the, the impact of technology has disrupted what we do and then the pandemic has made it way worse because you all can't tour you can't go out and play in person really we're hoping that things will open up uh as the year uh wears on um and so we need to be able to have a curriculum because we have competition we have competition um you know um in simple ways like if um i bought a uh what do you, not a juicer, um, but a, uh, uh, what do you call those things you make? Um, well, I'm, I don't know why I'm having the, the struggle. Smoothies. Yeah. So I was, I was interested in how to run my machine that my wife bought me. So where did I go? I went straight to YouTube. Um, they're wonderful. Um, guitar lessons on YouTube and um, in, in other places. And, um, um, but we're better than that. What we have is deeper than that. And I think we can be, we can go even deeper and be even more transformative um, in what we present to our students and what we present um to the world one thing i love about what you said was you said that you had attempted this 
at a time when you really cared about it and it didn't go the way you wanted and it disappointed you and you were patient and mm -hmm. you've you've come back to it over and over and over again and i think that's so instructive for everyone who's listening no matter what you're applying that concept to that sort of we're coming strength, back strength to come back to something and to make it better and push it forward even if it doesn't happen right when you when you think it should and um totally yeah full force that's what that's how we're going to come about one of my favorite bands is the art ensemble of chicago yes. and i went to this one concert they had they have an album called full force i went to this concert i was not prepared i thought i was prepared it was a big stage the stage was bigger than the bpc every inch of that um stage was filled with instruments no not all traditional instruments hubcaps you know bicycle horns i mean just all kind and they played them all and they made such joyous music i left out of there i don't know if i was screaming i don't know what i was doing but i left i was so happy and that's what this music does i mean it just it it, it is um um I saw, um, uh, the, um, I, I was gonna tell a story about Servan, but I saw my wife and I went to see uh, Abby Lincoln in, um, uh, in Brooklyn, it was several years ago. And she started singing this one song and both of us were in tears. Literally, I'm not, this is not made up. I'm telling you, this is the power of this music to move one to tears by its sheer beauty, the sheer commitment of these artists to be completely and totally vulnerable in the moment to connect with an audience. Um, and the last real quick story I'll tell you, you all may know this, because this is more recent. And, and it's uh, regarding Danilo Perez's uh, Berkeley Global Jazz Institute. And one of the things, there are many things, many reasons I like that institute, but one is uh, the, the, the belief that people must connect to community in authentic ways. And so they play in prisons and mental health institutions and senior citizens homes and the like. And so he took this quintet to the senior citizens facility and uh, this young woman, alto player, I forget, uh, I should remember, I don't remember the name of the tune. At any rate, Danilo counts the tune off and off they go. And several bars in, he stops the um, uh, uh, performance and he goes up to this young, young woman and he says, do you see this man in this wheelchair over here? He's trying to connect with you and you're not paying him any attention. You're just focused on your horn, focus on the music. So he said, I only want you to connect with him. I only want you to look at him. And he counted off the tune again. And by the end of that tune, both of those two people were deep in tears because of the connection. And then it came out that the tune they were playing was this older gentleman's, one of his most favorite compositions. And, and, and they had that moment. Um, 
So, Kim, that's what I'm about. I want us to create those moments in our classrooms, to create those moments in the work that we do, that we that we operate at at the highest, most honest, most authentic level that we can. Um, and um, because if we do that, then we will remain the best at what we do. I love everything you said about depth and excellence and vulnerability and honesty and all of the things that you've shared with us today. And Cheryl, as, as we're wrapping up this cup of coffee, do you have a thought on your mind? Well, one, thanks for coming by and sharing your thoughts with us. And um, I really, I love everything you said about jazz and the power of it and just the healing that you're talking about. There's the healing power of the music, the transformative power of the music and that we're dedicated to that. So thanks for sharing um, your ideas about that. It's very- I appreciate great. it. And just to be clear, when I say jazz is a music that I have devoted my life to primarily. Um, there are other musics and other cultures that impact and affect people in the same way. But I guess the real issue is you, you have to make a commitment to something, <laughs> to some form of music. Um, um, and I would hope that one would commit to the music that is most earnest about finding what it means to really be a human being. I think that everything you said is, is a universal for every style of music. Right. The, that, that's really, what I'm saying. And it also opens a door. I mean, as a person, I loved classical music and that was my, my, um, my identity. And then when I came to Berkeley, I found that what you're talking about allowed me into new music and, um, and a new expression and, and now I have an electric guitar and I'm a free improviser and, hey, love it. and, uh, and I have some art ensemble of Chicago records and some weather report and some ornette on my, my vinyl with my big totally. speakers back there. Totally. So, totally. so I, I am definitely a beneficiary of, of the transformation and, and felt at home because I related to the other things you were saying about totally. knowing yourself and the hard work involved. Totally. So, um, Ian, you have a last, last thought? As we're signing off? Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, oftentimes in these coffee talk interviews, we get really technical on the guitar and practicing and how to do these things because they're genuinely interesting to us. But I think it's really important that you also brought us back to sort of why we play the music and, you know, connecting to some of that deeper purpose and what we're doing. Well, you know what? Um, uh, Bobby Hutchison, the great vibers, late vibers, told me this many years ago, we're having this conversation about the avant-garde and what you're saying. It is absolutely necessary that you all focus on the people's technical chops. If they don't have them, then they, they won't be good musicians. And his thing is, if you can't play in, you can't play out. And that was the thing that Many people, um, um, there were some in the, there were some frauds in the avant-garde uh, movement because they weren't good musicians, and so they would just go, you know, playing all that cacophonous music. But, um, but it is you all's responsibility to make sure that they have the technical proficiency, because if they don't, 
they they won't be able to get at the level and do the things that the, the very things we're talking about. So I love the fact that you all spend a lot of time talking technique and and the technical aspects of the guitar because people need those chops um, if they're going to break any rule. You got to first know the rule before you can break it, and um, uh, and you have to be able to manipulate the uh, the guitar with a, a high level of facility uh, before you can transcend um, the limitations of the the technique if that makes any sense you know yeah. you got to have the technique so you can forget it it does and I think that's right it's right on um, Larry we're clearly fortunate and really honored to have you as our leader and a member of our guitar community so um, thank you so much and thank you for being on Coffee Talk. So everyone, we're going to let you all go. We're going to hang with Larry and he's going to give us a listening list to share with you all. Um, so until next time, everyone who's watching and listening, coffee cheers. Thank you, Cheryl Bailey. Thank you, Dr. Larry Simpson. And thank you, Ian Steve. My pleasure.